So welcome to Confessions of a Serial Seller. Really excited for my guest. He's a Chief Value Officer at Rembo Sales Solutions. I love that title, Chief Value Officer. He's been ranked by, as presented on Forbes.com, ranked eighth in the top 30 social salespeople in the world as presented on an article for Forbes. He's the creator of objective-based selling, his methodology. Tibor Shanto, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, especially you know, in these days where we're trying to stay together but disconnected. Absolutely, absolutely. So I always ask my guests, Tibor, how, how you got into the world of sales. How did the journey begin for you? Well, you know, I was a short order cook on this galactic spaceship that used to do regular runs between Alpha Centuria and the other end of the galaxy. <laughs> and then one day, it was around 1979. If you remember before 1979, we were all worried about climate change, yeah. that we were going to freeze over again. But then you remember that it was a change around 1979. And that was around the time that my Galactus starship crashed along with my colleagues. So, you know, we had to find sustenance and find a way to live and all that. So we had to get jobs. So I went into the job that required the least skills, sales. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I've not heard that journey before, but it, that sounds, the, the least skill required sounds familiar. And, and it will give that, an opportunity for people to rationalize some of my other answers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But on, and it's a really interesting point you, you make. A lot of salespeople say, you know, they fell into sales, right? It was the only thing that required mm. no skill. What, what do you genuinely believe is the skills needed, though, to be, to be a super success in sales? You know, at the risk of sounding cliche, and I'll elaborate, I think pretty much similar to other professions that require discipline and continuous improvement. So that's not to say that there are some professions that don't strive to continuously improve, but, you know, I would say the analogy in sports, you know, if you take football, there's an expectation that they're going to do better than the year before. There's an expectation that they're going to continue to win the cup. Yeah. And, you know, when one of your teams doesn't win, you get all disappointed or what have you. So what's involved there? You know, an understanding of your capabilities and a willingness to improve mm. the ability to execute a process, for lack of a better word. I would say it helps if you have curiosity in the mix because that always makes self-improvement a little bit better. Mm. But if you ask me, it's sort of that discipline um, and understanding of that discipline and, you know, as a means of getting over some of the hurdles in the road, you know, having a little bit of curiosity about what's on the other side. And I think discipline is, is, is absolutely critical, but so many of my listeners will want to be disciplined but allow life to get in the way. What's, mm -hmm. what's some of your best advice of how my sales listeners can remain disciplined for their pursuit of success? So when I work with my clients, I work around this concept where, you know, I talk to them about time. Time is like ultimately the other thing that's important is how you use time because yeah. it's the only finite resource that you'll ever deal with, right? Everything else you can get more of. And salespeople have this impression that, you know, there's an abundance of time. Well, in theory, there is because it goes on forever, but how much of it you have is different. Mm. So every midnight, we're given 24 hours and each of us on the planet, no difference. Mm. And what I do with it will determine my success and what you do with yours determines your success. Mm. 
So to answer your question, I talked to them about this notion of not worrying about time management because it's already, you know, been managed. There's seven hours, you know, seven days to a week, 24 hours yeah. to a day, 52 weeks to a year. You know, everybody can agree to that. Yes. So the yeah. question then becomes, what do you do with time? Well, you allocate it and you allocate it to key activities. So I do this exercise that people can do. So if you think about it, think of the number 1,760. Mm. And the math on that is 220 business days a year, depending where you are. I know you guys get more bank holidays than we do. Yeah. But, you know, so 220 days a year, eight hours a day that are considered face time in the traditional vernacular. Mm. Um, so think of that as investment capital. That's mm. money that your company gives you, much like you would give money to a wealth manager. Mm. And then in the form of your quota, they say, we'd like a 10% increase on that. Just like when you go to a wealth manager, you say, mm. I'd like a certain return on the funds that I give you to invest on my behalf. Mm. First thing the fund manager is going to do if he's half a professional is begin to understand how you're different than all their other clients. So they're going to look at your attributes what your aspirations are, what your risk tolerance is, mm. how many kids you want to send to university, how many wives you got to pay alimony to, all these things <laughs> that make you, you. Yeah. And based on that, they'll begin to allocate a certain amount of the funds that you entrusted to them to specific asset classes, whether it's yeah. derivative, equity, cash, you name it, right? Yeah. So, and the goal is that with the way that they allocate those funds, you'll have the ability to get the return to achieve the aspirations you set out for yourself. Yes. So it's the same thing in sales. If you think of that $1,760 or pounds or whatever currency you want to use, um, how are you going to allocate it? How, what are you going to invest it in? What are you going to spend it on? What are you going to bank away in order to get the return that is represented by your quota? Mm. So I think the long answer to your question is people need to sit down and A, inventory all the key activities that they have to do during the cycle. Not mm. things they like to do or things that maybe are worth doing, but things that they have to. Like, and we all know this. Like, you know, Let's not pretend. If you've been in sales for a year, you know what you have to do. Yes. So once you inventory that, and people you know, will have different things. Like I need to inventory training because... I have to do that during daylight hours. So that comes out of my inventory. My funds are depleted by that amount, if you will. Yes. Right. So just like any other money, you want to make sure that you're hanging on to it and you're using it smartly. So if people started thinking about time as being money. Like if somebody mm. came to you and said, you know, Tony, you want to come down to the pub for, you know, for a pint and you'd say, sure, you know, but if that same person came and said to you, Tony, I'm going to reach in your pocket and I can take out 2,000 quid and never going to pay you back, you'd have a different attitude, right? Yes. Yes. So you got to look at time in that way. It's finite. It's going to run out. And unlike pints, you can't replace them. Yeah, that's so, a, really, it's a nice perspective, actually. Yeah. So I think that's how you develop discipline because in fear of losing money, you'll do things not to. So in mm. fear of losing time or investing it more wisely, then you'll mm. act differently. So it starts there. Mm. And, you know, if, if people are interested, I have a whole white paper that I did for top sales world that they can find somewhere so they can either reach out to you or to me. But I think Thank that's you. where it starts. That's the foundation. And then once you figure out what it is that you need alloc to allocate time to, whether it's prospecting, discovery, mm. demos, whatever your cycle looks like. Yes. Then that's what you got to allocate time to. And not every day, but over the course of the cycle. Because 
you're not going to do the exact same thing every day. I'm not looking for you to become a robot. I'm looking for you to become disciplined. Mm, I really like that. I love, I love that perspective. I've never looked at it like that. Great perspective. I know you... Well, you know, when you come from outer space, you get to see... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know you're the, the, the chief value officer at Rembo Sales yeah. Solutions. I really love that name. I mean, that, that's our goal, right, is to give as much value as possible. And, and I know right. you, you specialize in developing the frontline sales in organizations and have created the methodology, the objective-based selling. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit more about how that came about and more about what, what it entails. <clears throat> so it came about because, I don't know if you're aware, but about 10 years ago, I co-authored a book about trigger events. Yes. And the one thing you come to realize when you co-author a book is it's a lot like you know, it's a lesson in compromise. It's a lot like marriage without the nocturnal rewards. Yeah. So, you know, there were things in that book that I think my co-author had to compromise to meet my standards. And there were some mm. things that I had to compromise to meet his standards. Mm. And one of them that I couldn't get my head around and it wasn't worth arguing because we had too many other arguments on the go <laughs> yeah. um, was... This notion, two, two things. One, that you can't sell to the status quo, which I told them is wrong because I made a career of it and I trained my clients to do that. Yeah. And the other, that there's some correlation between satisfaction and the willingness to switch. Mm. So after the book was finished, I started looking into this notion of loyalty. So there is this concept out there among salespeople that somehow satisfaction equals loyalty. And if you have those two things, it's a hard thing to penetrate. Mm. But in the course of doing that research, and if you went to the book, there's a whole big to-do about the window of dissatisfaction and nothing happens till the person gets there, right? Mm. But, you know, while the logic of it was there on paper, you know that we're not logical beings, so intuitively it didn't, you know, it didn't sit well. Mm. So I started doing a lot of research and the thinking was that if I could figure out what makes people loyal, I could pull that earlier into the cycle and maybe accelerate the front end of the cycle. Mm. But I found quickly that there is absolutely zero correlation between loyalty and satisfaction. Mm. And there were several books that I went to. There's one that I keep going back to because it's the easiest one to remember by Bell and Patterson called Customer Loyalty Guaranteed. Oh, and what yeah. they showed and what I found in numerous other studies, so it wasn't an isolated thing, is that there is no correlation. According to them, 75% of customers who switch from vendor A to vendor B, mm. at the time they switched, they said they were completely satisfied or satisfied with the vendor they were leaving. Interesting. So sort of put a big hole in this notion that if they're satisfied, they won't leave. And it sort of put a bigger hole that you have to wait for the window of the satisfaction with every other salesperson waiting at the same bus stop. Mm. So, which was what I was reluctant about the whole thing, because just because you see a trigger, if everybody else sees the same trigger, what's the point? Mm. So the point was, when you look at it backwards, is that really what we're taking advantage of is not the trigger, but the person's reaction to the trigger, right? Mm. So if I could get you to react or have the same reaction, but without having to wait for the bus, yeah. the trigger with all the other salespeople, then maybe I can get ahead of the game. Yes. So I started looking around as to why it is that people who are ostensibly satisfied are leaving and why this myth about loyalty is not as firm as mm. you know, salespeople want to pretend. Mm. 
And what I found, and I started talking to some salespeople who I think are smarter than me, and I started mm. talking to customers and former customers. Mm. And what became clear is that the one thing that they had in common, regardless of what other attributes they had, mm. was that they all had some objective that they were trying to hit. That's why they switched. They were willing to leave the safety of the known and satisfied mm. because they saw enough impetus to get to their objective by switching. Okay. So that sort of got me thinking because objectives, okay, everybody has one. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that we'll get to in a couple of minutes. But, mm. you know, the other thing then, though, is if you look at marketing, I think to some degree they have part of their act a little bit better than we do. Mm. And we have part of our act better than they do. So, but. What it came down to is they, marketing has this concept that they worked with for years, you know, awareness, consideration, decision, right? And the, mm. and the, and the factor there was distance to decision. Mm. So somebody who's four months from decision is going to act differently than somebody who's 14 months away from decision, right? Mm. Yet if you look at most of the sales world, especially in the new, you know, SaaS models and all that, because they're trying to work with personas, and that's an yeah. entire other podcast episode. Yes. Um, they end up having these personas that are, I'm sure they wouldn't look at it like that, but if you step back, they sort of make it look like the whole market is this one monolithic thing. Mm. But it's not, because if you look at your entire market, your, your measurable market, some people are going to be ready to buy soon, and some people are going to be ready to buy in 18 months. Mm. But how you speak to them needs to be different, because the person at 18 months is looking at things differently than the person at four months. Mm. So mm. that began to get me to look, okay, where are these people? So 10% of the market is actively looking. These are the people that are hitting your site. They're the ones that are downloading whatever you offer them. Yeah. That's just that mythical 57% that's, you know, doesn't need a salesperson to. Yes. Well, that makes sense because they're buyers, right? They moved yeah. on their own. Yeah. Right? So they got a big order. They need to increase capacity. You know, they have an opportunity because of COVID or whatever the case might be. They moved on their own. And it's not always because of pain, as most salespeople would lead you to believe. Yes. So most of the narratives and messages are targeting that 10%. Mm. There's another 20% that I call passively looking. So they know that they need to make a purchase, but they know that they don't need to make it till, say, midway 2021. That's when the piece of equipment might come to term of life. Yep. And last time it took him four months to make a decision. So they figure maybe there's been some advancement. So we got to pad that out. So in their mind, they need six months to make the decision. So for the next 12 months, they're passive. They're not oblivious to the market, but they're not jumping in. The things that they're considering, as marketing would call them in consideration, aren't necessarily product and spec related. They're more like, what are my options? Do I go cloud or do I go on-prem or do I go with some sort of blended environment? Mm. Right. So they're trying to decide how to achieve their objectives, not product, not which product will take them there. Mm. So there's an opportunity to do a lot of good work in those 12 months. Most salespeople will diarize the column back in nine months because they yeah. will be the early bird. Yes. <clears throat> but you have like nine to 12 months to become this person's emotional favorite, especially if you know why, what people... If you're reviewing your deals regularly, the ones you lose and the ones go to no decisions and the ones that win, you can begin mm. to see where were some critical turning points, what were some critical things, right? Mm. You can also tell what somebody was interested in 18 months before the deal versus 12 versus six. So now mm. you can communicate with these people differently and it doesn't take a lot, but 
I can continue to communicate with you, Tony, over the next nine months, mm. send you relevant material based on what I know from experience you're thinking about. So not about my product, but what are the advantages of having a blended environment rather than strictly cloud or on-prem, you know, or mm. something like that. Mm. So I'm sending that to you without talking about my product. One of my favorite expressions that I use is leave your product in the car. Leave the window yes. open a little bit so it could breathe, but leave the product in the car. Yeah. Right? So yeah. if you can go in and have that discussion with them based on what you know from previous deals, yeah. you know, then you can become their emotional favorite over time. But then there's that big group of about 70% that everybody agrees is status quo and everybody tells yeah. you that, you know, they're the salesperson's biggest competitor, complacency, yeah. you know, they're, they're averse to change. And then the big hammer they hit you with is that they're satisfied. Yes. So, you know, yeah, well, you know now how I feel about that hammer. Yeah. So I began to dig in and, and the one thing that you find is that they all have objectives. So even that guy in pain, right? Let's mm. say he just got kicked in the shin by his market. Yeah. And he's in pain. Once you give him that aspirin, he doesn't stop existing. He's got other objectives to, for the business, right? Yes. So even if you, so by focusing on objectives, you can still communicate and engage with people who are actively looking, passively yeah. looking, but you'll also engage with the status quo. And I'll hand it back to you, but just think about it this way. Mm. If your message on the phone or email is geared to the status, is geared to the actively looking, Mm. Are you trying to solve this? Do you have this pain? And I've mm. written sequences for companies and that is what they sound like mm. at their insistence, not mine. Mm. Um, so if somebody was to come to you and you were not in pain, you were happy as the proverbial pig, right? Mm. <laughs> they came to you and said, we can solve this pain for you. What would you say? Yeah, I'd say that's not a pain. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not suffering. But let's say you had the objective to, you know, make it the black bull for summer holidays, right? I don't know why, but let's say. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I take and it I you've not been you up, <laughs> And I called you up and talked to you about that objective or mentioned something about this new holiday home that I built in, uh, in uh, Blackpool or whatever. Yeah. You might be inclined to have a conversation. I'm Absolutely. not saying you're going to buy, but everything starts with a conversation. Yeah. So that's where objective-based selling comes from is that if I can understand what your objectives are mm. and I can begin to understand how I've helped other companies achieve those objectives. And then most importantly, the impact that those objectives had on their business. So I, what I want to do is go back six months later and ask them not how they like my product or how they're using it. But the first question you want to ask them is how has your workflow changed? Yes. Because that's what you're going to sell to the next guy. I love that. I really, so, and it's a, a very fascinating way of looking at it is understanding where they are in their journey and communicating a different message based on that. That's what I've taken from that. I think that's a, a really wonderful well, insight, actually. I want to emphasize, not different, you know, not the stuff I used to do in the spaceship, but <laughs> more specific. So yes. again, a lot of the messages assuming that the person's in buying mode, so they're communicating those kinds of things. Yes. Yes. So I think not so much different, but more timely. So yeah. again, you know, what are you thinking about 12 months before? Let's make the message relevant to that. So not different, but timely. Yeah. I'm really cool. Really, really cool. What, what's some, I know you've worked with thousands of salespeople in your company and, and I'm sure in, in a mentoring capacity, what's some of the best sales advice, Tibor, that you've personally received that served you 
best? I would say three things. One is really obvious. And uh, the only thing you got when you come into this and the only thing you want to hold on to while you go through this so you can get out of it intact is your reputation. Mm. So I think that often, and I've been fortunate enough where I've won deals where people have told me it's because of what they heard of me. And this was prior to me pushing my face all over the place. Fantastic. Um, you know, and so I think that having that at the core that you're in a sense, all these people talk about personal branding, this, that, or whatever, it really yeah. comes down to how you manage your reputation. Yeah. Right? And I think the other one, as I mentioned before, is this notion of curiosity. Mm. I think that if you're not curious, you're always going to lose. Yeah. Unless you're an order taker. Um, And then the third one is this willingness to just do it. And I don't want to sound like Nike because it's not like that. I mean, you know, I used to be a runner. Yeah. And I remember reading this book about a marathoner and, you know, they asked her, what's the hardest part of of training and practice? And she said, getting out the door. Yes. Because once you're out the door, you knew what to do, right? Yes. So I think a lot of salespeople know what they have to do, but they're reluctant to do it for different fears. And I'm not making fun of them. I understand them. I went through the same thing and so on. Mm. But then I became a parent and I started watching this movie as you do with your kids several thousand times, whatever the Disney iteration is at the time. Yeah. And my turn was Aladdin. Yeah. And there was a line in Jafar, in Aladdin by Jafar, that if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you better. Yeah. So I figure if on the face of it, it looks like it's not going to kill you, you should go for it. Mm. You know, there's a lot of times when salespeople have a question on their mind Mm. and they don't ask it because of social norms and things like that. So I guess maybe if I could put one more cherry on it, I think they need to be comfortable being counterintuitive. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. That's gold. Really, really like that. Because I, I do think you, you're absolutely right. You've hit a, a nail on the head there that so many salespeople do want to ask the question, but are just petrified of embarrassing themselves, looking desperate, being rejected. You know, and, and you've, as you said, if it doesn't kill you, just do it. But that's easy. that sounds easy, but so many listeners will be thinking, yes, but that's not the real world. What, what, can, you, what, what can you do to get them, help them overcome that barrier? Personally, I can't do anything other than share my experience. I don't claim to have that kind of power. Mm. But I will say that I've lived up to that. I mean, people that know me, you know, will tell you that I've tried things because it didn't look like it was going to kill me. And it was legal. It has to be legal and ethical. Yeah. Yeah. Let's put that on it. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, but. And I don't mean to be philosophical here. And, you know, I guess it's a question of what you're willing to go to sleep with. The fact that you you didn't even try and lost yeah. or the fact that you tried and maybe lost or better yet, you tried and won. Yes. So you pick which one you want to go to sleep with and that should motivate you to do things differently mm. in the morning. That's nice. I really like that. I really like that. What, what's, I want to ask you, Tibble, if you think of all the sales you've ever won in your career to date, which one really stands out above all the rest and what were sort of the key takeaways for you on that sale? I closed Xerox for a six-figure deal on 9-11. Wow. Wow. How the hell did you do that? Uh, I'd worked the deal all summer. Yeah. And, you know, I, 
I had my shit together, let's put it that way. I talked to their salespeople in the field. I talked to their knowledge, you know, their chief knowledge officer. And yeah. at, at the time, 2001, Xerox was at the height of the chief knowledge officer stuff. Yeah. And, you know, so I did my work, did my thing, you know, little things. Like we went up to Connecticut to meet with their VP. And my VP asked me if I brought a PowerPoint. And I said, no. And he said, why? I go, because they work in paper. So I brought a printout of it because that's what they relate to. So yeah. little things like that. You know, if you're going to go and see a paper company, don't take PowerPoint, take a printout. Yeah. Right? And they were loving it. They were making notes all over the PowerPoint. They would have never done that with the thing on the screen only, right? Yes. So we had everything teed up. I came up with a deal. I made him an offer. It was a beautiful deal. One way or the other that, you know, the renewal was going to be a bonus, right? Mm. And at the time I was working on a team that was sort of a SWAT team. We had, to give them credit, the, the people who led the sales organization at the time were into data analysis long before most of the market thought about it. Mm. So we not only had a list of 2000 companies that we were going after and we were not interested in anybody else because that was going to be just a distraction. Yeah. Um, within that, we had a feel for who spent enough and who didn't. Yeah. And Xerox was on the didn't list. And I was tasked with bringing in a certain group of didn't. Mm. So, um, so that's why it was a long thing because, you know, we really had to work and I had to talk to a whole bunch of people. And as I say, talk to a bunch of their major account reps and things. So long and the short of it, it all lined up that we had to go to Rochester, upstate New York, to sign this deal of all days 9-11. Mm. So my biggest fear was that they're not going to sign because of the big event and a bit of a clue i have a lot of relatives in israel so bombs going off and people being in danger was not a new thing every time you listen to the news you pick up the cell phone and call to see that all your relatives are still intact yes so in that spirit i focused on getting the deal done and while everybody was trying to sort of decide if the world was going to end or not I figured that it was going to keep going. And if it was going to keep going, I wanted my commission. Yeah. So I focused them. Again, I would say I focused them on what their objectives were. Like, yes, we know the, not so much the skies, but the towers are falling. Mm. But what are you going to do a year from now? And when you focus them on that and they realize that we will go through this wave of shock, wave of, you know, uh, so we're grieving and things like that eventually like we're facing now with this yeah. COVID thing, we are going to have to come out of our basements. Yes. And so I got them to focus on that. Very clever. And I think it goes back to your objective selling, right? It's, it's focusing on what the future, what their key objective was for that future and taking their mind to a different place. I'll be honest with you at the time, it was more instinct than design. Yeah. Yeah. No, brilliant. Brilliant. Tibor, I, I love what you shared with us. Where can my audience read some of you mentioned your white paper earlier? Where's the best place for them to access that and some of the other great content that I know I've personally read that you've put out there? So, you know, the best place is my website, tiborshanto.com, T I B O R S H A N T O.com. Yep. Um, I don't know where that, I think that. Because it's about three or four years old, I'm not sure that I surfaced the, uh, what do you call it? So if people write you or write me, I can tell them where the uh, landing page is so they can grab it. Fantastic. Um, but I don't think it's visible. A lot of other content is visible. Yeah. I've been putting out a daily uh, video since this whole COVID thing started, getting salespeople to think about things differently. And now I've sort of turned to 
we know inevitably we're coming out of the basement. So what can you do to come out of it differently? Yeah, they've, and, I've been watching those religiously. They're fantastic tips you give. So uh, I'll make sure I, I'll, I'll have the links when I publish this and, and so my audience can really take advantage of that. And the one thing that COVID's gotten me to do that I've been talking about for about 18 months is really moving my programs into a different omni-channel delivery yeah. method as opposed to... So that's come about now, and it's probably going to be launched in the next couple of weeks under the banner of Proactive Prospecting Club. So just basically dealing with the reality that a lot of folks, I don't see them going back into traditional workshop yep. styles. Yeah. I'm not sure I want to be in those right now unless everybody signed that they're immune. Yeah. But I think, and again, as we mentioned before we got on, I've been talking to a lot of my clients. So I've been getting a lot of input from them as to what they would see working and so on. So, yeah. you know, I'm on a pretty good path where, as I say, in the next week or so, that should be finished and I should be getting behind that so people can keep an eye on that and maybe Fantastic. we can do another conversation. Yeah. By the way, you should come on my podcast as well. Oh, thank you. Um, I'd love to. Thank you. We'll, we'll definitely organize that. And I look forward to seeing the Prospecting Club. That sounds great. The Proactive Prospecting yeah. Club. I'd, I'd, I'd look out for that. Tibor, thank you so much for giving me your, your time. Really, really appreciate it. And look, please stay safe in uh, Toronto. Yes, I will. You too as well. And, you know, I'm sure one day we'll all be able to go for a pint again. Oh, that sounds great. Look forward to that day massively. <laughs> look after yourself and thank you once again. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And again, stay safe. Thank you.